The following is a recording of a discussion entitled The 2020 Primary, Representation and the Battle for a Presidential Nomination. It was held at the University of Denver on January 23, 2020, hosted by the Center on American Politics. The panelists were Seth Maskett, Ismail White, Julia Azari, Christina Walbrecht, and Hans Knoll. So as the chancellor mentioned, uh, my name is Seth Maskett. I'm a, I've been a professor in the political science department for about 15 years, and I'm director of the Center on American Politics, which is about two and a half years old. Um, the Center on American Politics here at DU exists basically for two purposes. One's, one is to uh, promote scholarship uh, about American politics in an interdisciplinary fashion across the campus. And the other is to bring interesting public discussions to campus. And, and that's really what tonight is all about. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful to our, our panel of experts who have come in for this. And I will introduce them shortly. But to start, an anecdote um, that uh, appeared in my book, so they should know about it. Um, so, um, Okay, it's interesting to think about how the current Democratic presidential nomination uh, contest has evolved. Um, last May, uh, Derek Davidson, um, a writer, uh, posted a photo online uh, on Twitter of uh, Representative Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, who was then a, president for, or a presidential candidate, uh, with the text, after a lot of soul searching, I think I've found my 2020 candidate, and it's Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio, pictured. Um, <laughs> Now, um, uh, Seth Moulton saw this online, thought it was funny, and said, no, Derek, this is New York City Mayor Eric Swalwell. <laughs> Tim Ryan uh, then responded to uh, Moulton saying, thank you for clarifying, Senator Bennett. Um, and then Michael Bennett then responded to Ryan saying, thanks for your service to the good people of South Bend. My whole family loves Chasen's Twitter feed. Um, <laughs> This was, this was a joke, uh, of course, but it was telling. It was several moderate white male Democratic candidates joking that no one could tell them apart, and importantly, no one cared to because they were interchangeable um, and because the contest was clearly going in a different direction. Uh, the Democratic field was the most diverse of any parties in American history. Uh, prominent candidates like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro seemed to have realistic shots at the presidential nomination. Yet the most recent debate uh, only contained white candidates, and the women candidates have faced some real obstacles, such as Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar having to share the coveted New York Times endorsement that came out last weekend. And the candidate in first place in the polls is a 77-year-old white guy, and the candidate in second place is a 78-year-old white guy. So this has been a fascinating cycle. Um, and as we reach the end of this invisible primary phase um, and get to the part where people actually start voting, which is just about a week and a half from now, um, it's good to ask what exactly we've learned. Um, do we have any better sense of how parties nominate candidates, you know, how we get who we get, uh, than we did a year or two ago? And to address this, I've invited some of the top scholars in parties and voting behavior from across the country, who I will introduce now. Um, I'll ask them some questions, and then we'll leave some time for your questions toward the end. Um, so starting farthest from me, that is Hans Knoll. Uh, Hans Knoll is a professor of political science at Georgetown University. He studies the coalitions and ideologies at the core of America's political parties. He's the author of Political Ideologies and Political Parties in America. And he's one of the authors of the much-loved and much-reviled book, The Party Decides, Presidential Nominations Before and After Reform. He contributes online to the Mischiefs of Faction blog. Next to him is Christina Walbrecht. 
Um, Christina is a professor of political science and director of the Rooney Center for the Study of American Democracy at the University of Notre Dame. Um, she researches and writes on political parties, women, and gender, and is one of the nation's leading experts on women's suffrage and the gender gap. Uh, she's a co-author of the recent book, A Century of Votes for Women, American Elections Since Suffrage, which comes out from Cambridge University Press basically any day now, this week, next week, okay. Uh, next to her is Julia Zari, who is a professor of political science at Marquette University in Wisconsin. She studies the American presidency, political rhetoric, party nominations, and the formal and informal rules that govern American politics. She's the author of Delivering the People's Message, The Changing Politics of the Presidential Mandate, and she's working on a book on the strengths and weaknesses of parties. She appears often online, contributing frequently at the Mischiefs of Faction in 538, and has a well-loved Twitter account. And finally, uh, we have Ismail White, who is a professor of political science at Duke University. Um, he researches public opinion, political participation, and African-American politics. He's the co-author of a new book, Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior, which examines the social pressures that encourage blacks, even conservative blacks, to continue to identify with the Democratic Party. Uh, that book comes out with Princeton University Press. Is it next month? Or is it? OK, next month. OK. So with that, I'm going to sit down and join the panel. Um, are there wa is there water for everyone? So in case people get choked up, thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to start off um, with one fairly simple question. And any of you or all of you can answer it. Um, what was, thank you, what was the main lesson Democrats should have learned from 2016? And have they learned it? I don't know who would like to tackle that first. Well, I wrote a book on interpreting elections, so I'll <laughs> jump on that on that grenade. Um, and I'll, I'll preface by saying that my point in the book was that elections can't really be, can't really be accurately interpreted. There's never one lesson. There's, there's different lessons that are really shaped much more by the politics of what happens after than by anything that really happened in the election. That being said, it seems to me like the obvious, the obvious lesson is that your electoral college strategy matters a lot. Um, and the Democrats aren't immune from having one, particularly in the Midwest. But that lesson seems to be very low on the list of, of possible, you know, it seems like the nomination, they're trying to work out every possible question um, and not really thinking about the fact that strategy rather than the nominee's characteristics are probably what's going to drive, I would, I would think, the campaign. I so I told Seth that I was going to reject the premise of all of his questions. Uh, reject the premise of uh, reject the premise of this one. Um, you can still hear me. That's better. Um, and, and the reason is that I mean, obviously, we do want to learn things from <laughs> way down there. Is that better? No. It's getting worse. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> Uh, obviously, you learn things from elections. You learn things from any new piece of information. But I think um, one of the problems is that uh, we we want to learn so much from the election that we sort of overlearn lessons, and we're like, oh, well, what we learned was that you know a, a woman can't beat a, a, a Donald Trump. I, we didn't <laughs> learn that at all because there's a million things that possibly explain that, including I think especially the electoral college strategy uh, that uh, Julia mentioned. And so we don't really know what that is. And I'm, a lot of people will point out correctly, and I point this out myself all the time, that you know, if 70,000, 80,000 people in you know, three or four states voted differently or voted in different states, 
the election outcome would have been different. Had that happened, we would be having the same conversation and we would be saying, like, you know, did the Republicans learn the right lesson from that? And there would be a bunch of lessons that they would be discussing that they would be learned. And the outcome, the event was exactly the same, right? Because 70,000 people voting one way or the other is, is just like noise, right? So we really want to overinterpret the results. So it's not that there aren't things, lessons to be learned, but I think the, the real, what strikes me is what's happening is, is so much, we're so keen to learn a lesson, maybe even more so than, than previous elections. Uh, I, defer to Julia on that, but I think even more so than previous elections, we're so looking for, and why did this happen, that um, you know, the, the answer is sometimes events that are really unlikely sometimes happen. I do think it matters what this, no, there we go. Uh, I do think it matters what the story is. I mean, that's what's sort of interesting to me about this, about thinking particularly about gender in this election and the next one, which is, I agree that we don't know the answer, but what people think the answer is, and this is some of the work that Seth's been doing, matters a lot. So if they believe that the lesson was a woman can't win against, and I know that you know this, um, I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know. Um, you know, if the lesson is that all women are soccer moms and that's who you have, you know, I mean, like there's lots of ideas out there about what matters and who swing voters are and how you win elections. And there's no one person who controls what that narrative is. Um, almost everybody up here has done some work trying to understand different parts of that. How do we come to understand how what ideas about interests, uh, as Shatsoner said. Um, so it matters, but at this point, it's hard to, to imagine that we can stop the train, right? That people have decided um, what, what that meant and that they're deciding where they're going to run their ads and who they think is most electable, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I just would build on what Han said about the idea that people often think that, you know, people rush to these assumptions that it's all about the candidates and what the candidates do. It, it, strategy matters a, a lot, and, you know, things like turnout are, are very important. And one of the things you think about when you sort of look at the differences between the Democrats and the Republicans is, is their approach to turnout. Right, the Democrats are constantly seeking to expand the electorate, thinking that advantages them. The Republicans have a different approach, somewhat different approach, in in that they both want to expand it. They want to expand the electorate, but they also have a sense of contracting, you know, demobilizing, right? And perhaps what the Democrats could learn is perhaps how to demobilize. Now, the Democrats don't want to. <laughs> you know, they want people to vote, right. right? And, you know, they have a kind of moral sense of, you know, voting is a good thing, right? But there are ways to sort of discourage people who would not vote for you for voting. And to some extent for us as political scientists, we can offer help for how to turn out voters. But we can't really tell you how to demobilize voters because it's kind of, you know, sort of unethical to, <laughs> to do studies demobilizing people, right? I was telling, uh, you know, I have a paper that has been on my, in my file cabinet for 10 years because we, we went into it with the intent of mobilizing voters and we ended up demobilizing black voters in the 2008 primary. Whoops. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and it would, that paper has not seen the light of day because no one would publish it because it, they, they feel like it's unethical to give, give you know, uh, uh, 
to provide ways in which you could demobilize voters. Now, we, we didn't go in, into this with that, that intent. Can I add something yeah. to this? Is I kind of want to build on some of this, these questions about um, who's voting and who's not, but also Hans's decision to, to challenge the premise of the question. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as how people did interpret the election, one of the things that I saw frequently, as, as Seth mentioned, I spend much too much time on Twitter, so I've interacted with people who are very generous with their feedback about some of the things I've written up on. <laughs> um, and, one of the, and, and it's been really telling as far as who people think has power and who they think should have power. And that disconnect, I think, drives a lot of the anger that people express online in these conversations. Um, and it struck me, you know, it struck me a couple things. One thing is that there were a lot of people who were angry, obviously, that Trump won, and one of the lines of those folks is Hillary Clinton couldn't beat one of the worst, most unqualified candidates. And so the lesson I think that you learn from that is candidates don't matter that much. Partisanship is what matters. Electoral college strategy is what matters. Turnout is what matters. Um, but instead, the, the lesson that people seem to have taken from that was we couldn't beat this terrible candidate, so that must be a candidate problem. And I think that that tells us a lot about how election narratives emerge, because if you think about that for a second, it's not super logically consistent, but it's very emotionally resonant. Um, But the other thing, and this is maybe a little bit controversial, and I'm probably going to annoy someone, but these kinds of interpretations that suggest a woman can't win, emphasizing identity politics is risky, these things I know we're going to talk about in a bit, the willingness of Democrats, you know, from elite all the way down to people on Twitter to embrace those narratives, I think is not an accident, right? Historically, who has the power, right? It's white people, it's men. And that's not, that's not gone, even though the Democratic Party has shifted in its ideology and in its, its voter base. I think it's, it's not an accident that people have interpreted the 2016 election in a way that's, that serves long-standing powerful interests. So I know I've probably really annoyed people who are committed Democrats, and that's that's fine. Um, my Twitter is Julia underscore. <laughs> but just yeah. to just to re- right. respond on that, like um, on your your first point, I, I was sort of struck that like one of the things I think that has motivated this very large field of Democratic candidates in this cycle is the idea that the lesson of 2016 was that anyone could win. Right? Um, why not me? I mean, this happened, so well, maybe I should just throw my 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 hat, my name in the ring. Um, but then once those people start running, it's always like only a very certain type of people can win, um, and you know that's clearly the lesson. And so we, you know, we need to, you know, don't take a chance nominating some other person. Um, so yeah, I'd say that that I don't think we've reached a consensus on this by a long shot. <laughs> Well, and I would, so we've talked a lot this year as well, we should, about sort of sexism and the different candidates and things. But this is one where, and I was, the cracking the ceiling sort of rhetoric um, was a rhetoric that that Clinton used really effectively. But it sort of turns out that she was right. Um, There were six women who ran plausible campaigns for the Democratic nomination this year. And that was like the 10th most interesting thing happening. I mean, it certainly got coverage and people paid attention in the same way I went into 2016 like I'm a women in politics expert this will be my year and the fact that Hillary Clinton was a woman was like nobody cared because there's so much other sort of crazy stuff going on Um, and so there's some ways in which that's exciting so not the you know let's draft Oprah to be you know because we're just this we're going to pull from wherever anybody can be president the job is super super easy Um, but rather that this idea that um, in some ways, the goal, and everybody up here and probably out here knows that primaries are problematic in lots of different ways, 
But to me, six women the year after Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump is something of a success. Now, the fact that there's not still six women, less so. Of course, lots of men have dropped up as, as well. My understanding from Seth keeps the definitive data set on this question of people dropping out of, and who's, who's running. Uh, women have been more likely, uh, on average, to drop out. Um, yeah, the New York Times couldn't make up their mind, but they did pick two women. Again, that, I know you're like, oh, that's boring. I study suffrage. It was only 100 years ago. That's not that long that people thought that, that you know, women wouldn't take care of their children and were absolutely incapable and would be ruined um, if they went and got involved in politics. The old poster was the home or the street corner. Like, literally, these are your choices, right? Um, you're welcome. Um, and the answer is, yeah, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is women on the street corner now, and it's OK. That's where I went with that. Okay. I'm so glad you're recording this. This is great. This is good stuff. Super excited. This is good stuff. And her Twitter handle. <laughs> we'll, we'll work it out in post. Yes, yeah. Um, we So just to, to bring things back to, you know, on, on this particular cycle, um, we started off, as I mentioned earlier, with the most diverse set of candidates of any nomination contest in the country's history. And yet, nearly all the candidates of color have withdrawn. Um, most of the remaining leading candidates are white men. You know, just sort of generally speaking, how do we account for this? Like, what, what are the dynamics in this cycle that, that can account for this? Um, I, I think the, the, you know, part of the problem is the candidates of color, are the, they aren't perfect, <laughs> right? And nobody's perfect, and that's the problem. And I think, to some extent, you know, Obama sort of set a high bar. You know, he, he was sort of perfect in some ways. I, certainly, certainly many Democrats would think so, right? Uh, you know, uh, but we didn't know a lot about him, and he was there was a, a, a sort of novelty effect to 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 Obama and his politics, and you know he was this black guy who wasn't like Jesse Jackson, right? He wasn't Jesse Jackson, and in in ways that really appealed to your sort of typical Democrat, maybe not your typical black Democrat, but your typical Democrat. Um, and so I think that created a problem for the candidates coming in this cycle in the sense that, you know, they couldn't live up to that standard. And certainly Cory Booker does everything he can to be Obama and just can't. <laughs> can't. You know, he even tells narratives of himself and his life that sound very much like Obama's, right? And his campaigns that he ran in Newark were, were like Obama's, you know. Uh, and so, but he can't be that because, you know, Obama already happened. And, you know, to some extent, I mean, Obama obviously too is, you know, for, for us who study race and ethnic politics, we, we, certainly, we certainly realize today he's not perfect, in fact, you know, he has failed a lot of, in a lot of ways, the black community in the sense of, you know, the kinds of expectations we had for him, you know, coming into this. But, but, I mean, you know, I think more generally, you know, these candidates aren't perfect. And part of the problem maybe with the Democratic Party today is that they, they, they're hoping for the perfect candidate like Obama. And, that's not any of these people, you know, and so. I, I love that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
No, go ahead. I, I love that line because that, that sort of, um, what do we expect of a presidential candidate? What skills and abilities do you have? And of course, the, the point about Obama, right? All the right education, all the right background, the absolutely perfect family, right? Everything has to be sort of perfect, and it, probably not an accident that that's what our first African-American president looks like. Um, I think we see the same thing with women candidates, right? The, what we allow, what's permissible for the old white guys, so that's just the way they are, and that's just what we expect, versus, you know, so the classic examples, and God knows I don't want to bring up Hillary and Sanders again, Bernie and Sanders again. You know, he had a heart attack this time around. No one's talking about it. Hillary got pneumonia and stumbled getting into a car, and, and that was sort of the end of it in terms of her capacity. I will not give you the history of sort of views about women, but that idea that women are weaker physically and that being in politics would take too much out of them and cause them to become hysterical is a thousand-year-old idea. Um, and I think we, that's sort of what we see across these, these sort of different groups, that, the, that I need to be one of these Ginger Rogers backwards and in high heels, right? You've got to show that you can do it all perfectly. Um, and nobody's going to meet that standard, and certainly not today when the cameras are on you all the time. I always tell my students it would take me like an afternoon before they'd be like, we have her on video saying this dumb thing, it's over for her, <laughs> right? Um, but it seems like it's over for other people quickly in a way that there seems to be more opportunity for other more established candidates. And maybe that has nothing to do with gender, maybe that's a whole bunch of other dynamics going on, but it definitely feels like that's one of the dynamics. So, so I have an anecdote on this that I think is, is, is interesting. So I'm, I'm teaching a seminar this semester on presidential nomination politics, and, uh, and so we were actually discussing this last week, and that this very question is, comes up, we're discussing this, and we're talking around the so room. So you're okay with this question? This question's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just fine. Um, and so we were, you know, we're talking about this, and, and you know, the and people in the room are talking about it. They're, they're t coming up with uh, suggestions for why it's happening, and they're also just sort of generally lamenting that this is the situation because you know, st students who take a class on presidential nomination politics in a year when only Democrats are running, and mostly they're Democrats, and so they're lamenting this. And then you know, and then you know, we're talking this, and then one student says, "Up, he's like, has wants to say something," and he's like. He's the first uh, black student in the conversation has something to say about this. And he says, you know, the only people I know who complain about this are white people. He says, I'm not that bothered by the fact that there's not, the people of color aren't, aren't running. I mean, yeah, some would be nice, but you know, the particular people of color are running, they're, you know, they're, they're not so perfect. And they're, there's this, you know, they're not this or that. And, and you know what, I mean, I'm used to that. And so, you know, and, and of course, you know, he is a fan of other candidates. And it reminds me of some work, um, by uh, political scientist Julian Womble about why, uh, what it takes for black candidates to appeal to black voters. And what, um, what Womble shows is that um, it's really important to show that you are um, a member of the community and that you're committed to the community and that you have you know, suffered and so forth. So like this is the narratives that, that Cory Booker is trying to, to say he's part of. Uh, and the problem is that both Booker and Harris, for whatever reason, have not succeeded as well in that communication. Uh, Obama actually had a hard time with that too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but managed, you know, at, at some point. But a lot of, early on, a lot of his support was actually from, you know, from, uh, you know, sort of, you know, educated whites who uh, he was appealing to on that other dimension. Obama's appeal is complicated and we could go into it at great length. Um, so I think part of the story though is that, um, 
which we don't know. And that's this is a, that's a race story, and the, the, the gender story I think is somewhat similar, which is that. Um, the, the people who you would think would be most committed to descriptive representation, I mean, they're, they're used to being represented by uh, mediocre white men. And, um, and so, you know, if maybe some of them even buy these narratives that we're, we're talking about. Can I, for, uh, I want to ask you this, particularly on, on race. I mean, you know, I was really interested, particularly in, in Womble's research about how African-American voters play, you know, what they need to see in, in a black candidate. Um, and so perhaps they didn't see those qualities in Cory Booker or Kamala Harris, but they apparently did see it in Joe Biden. Um, and I'm wondering what, I don't know, what, what, what our impression is, what, what accounts for that? Is there, do we, or is this just some, a quirk of the race and we'll just never understand that? <laughs> I mean, I'm not the best one to answer, right, okay. but, I, but I will say this, which is that, I mean, it's not that they're seeing those qualities in Joe Biden, yeah. they're seeing you know, something else. And I mean, it is if what we're most concerned with is that somehow the you know um, black voters are not being adequately represented, we ought to pay attention to the candidate that they like, <laughs> even if that candidate does happen to be yeah. a, a white guy. Can I ask but, you a question on, on this this front um, in terms of thinking about specifically thinking about black voters? Isn't there a pretty significant age divide where there's older voters gravitating to Biden and younger to Sanders? Yeah, it is an age divide. Um, so. <clears throat> So Julian, Julian was my student for a little while. I was on the dissertation committee. And what, what Julian is arguing is that what African Americans are looking for is a, a sense of commitment to the community and sacrifice to the community. So to be clear, none of these candidates would be African Americans' first choice, right? <laughs> but there is some strategic behavior here to sort of picking the candidate that will both most likely represent the interest of African Americans and most likely appeal to white Democratic voters, right? And the, key, the, the importance of African Americans here is that, one, they're the most loyal Democratic voting bloc, right? And they make up significant portions of certain states' uh, uh, Democratic uh, uh, voting base, you know, particularly South Carolina, right? And thus, you know, to sort of understand why African Americans are not voting for the African American candidate is to, as, as Julian would argue, is to think, well, which of these people, and Julian also does, you know, one of his arguments is community commitment, but the other argument is a kind of at least some connection to the black community. And this would be the connection with Joe Biden and his connection with Obama. Right, mm -hmm. we've come to trust Obama, right? And this Joe Biden guy seems like you know he was Obama's right hand man, right? And thus, perhaps he will represent his interest, uh, our interest. But you know, to some extent, like Obama, right? And, and Julian's work does this, right? His argument is that blacks bought into Obama in part because of Michelle Obama, right? Mm -hmm. This was the Obama was a mystery to everybody, and this is what made him so successful, I think, right? He was a mystery until he wasn't, but he, he was a mystery to everyone, and he just, whatever you wanted to put, fill in, you could fill in, and he, he, he gave you that, right? And, uh, but for African Americans, they were dubious, right? He lost an election to uh, Bobby Rush in, in Chicago, and he lost it terribly, right? <laughs> He really lost, right? Because black people did, in the south side of Chicago didn't trust Obama, 
right? They came to trust him for the election, but he lost terribly, right? And thus, for with Julian's work, the connection there would be the this idea that so as Obama was sort of held accountable, perhaps, with this connection of Michelle to this African-American community, right? The same is true for Biden with Obama, is what I think Julian would argue if he were he putting words in his mouth. Okay. But. So can I jump in on this, on the question of um, why the field is less diverse than it it started out? I have a somewhat different direction to take this. This isn't necessarily cueing any specific um, voting block within the Democratic Party, but I think that there's, a, there's an important divide in the Democratic Party around kind of how comfortable you are with the status quo versus how much you think everything needs to kind of ha experience a wholesale change. And that was very clearly laid out between Sanders and Clinton in, um, in 2016. And I think that dynamic is often lurking in the Democratic Party, and then Obama sort of hit it at a really good time. People didn't really know who he was, but he was able to establish his credibility with the party very quickly, and coming off of, a, of an eight-year Bush presidency, you didn't really need you didn't need to deeply establish your change candidacy. You just kind of needed to nod in that direction. I think that's a little bit different now. Um, you know, now that we're a decade post recession, and a lot of people are still really feeling the effects of, of that. Um, we're we're hearing a lot of stuff in, within democratic discourse about criminal justice reform, and like really moving away from previously held positions. And I think that there's, women and candidates of color have had more trouble establishing themselves on that line, where if you are a candidate who does not look like previous presidents and you're talking about serious change, that's really destabilizing and that freaks people out. Um, at the same time, if you're a candidate who doesn't look like previous presidents and you're talking about the status quo, then you, I think this is some of what happened to Harris and Booker, then you just look like another moderate Democrat, and if you're going to be that, then people clearly just kind of move toward the Biden side of that of, of that camp. I think you know Klobuchar has managed to hang in there um, on that line, and that may just be an accident of what the field is like, or it may be something about her specific political skills that she's honed representing Minnesota in the Senate. But I think that that's that's a dynamic that's very challenging for people in new demographic groups to to navigate. Hmm. So particularly with, um, Christina brought up um, the example of, um, I guess, of Warren and Klobuchar. And I, guess I, I just want to think about the question, are male and female candidates, are they competing on an equal footing this year or more, a more equal footing than they have in past cycles? Um, we, there's plenty of evidence that when it actually comes down to elections, male and female candidates run about equally. Um, and uh, women candidates actually do better in Democratic primaries than male candidates, but um, are there still barriers even within this, uh, within this primary cycle? Uh, so it's a great question. Um, there's a, I guess I'd say a couple of things. So most of the literature, the research that looks at women in politics in the last, I don't know, 20 years, um, really talks increasingly about the lowering of barriers for women. So when we talk about why more women aren't elected, we think of supply factors and we think of demand factors. And the demand factors would be like, do voters want women? Do the parties want women? Do interest groups? Do funders? Do people you know, want women candidates? The supply factors are, how do, more, how do we get more women to run? Right? And so the, the, the demand stuff actually doesn't look that bad. So there was a systematic study done of local newspapers all across the country looking at coverage of 
um, uh, congressional candidates, male and female. That's how most Americans actually get their news, right? And it turns out they found no difference. They're one, they didn't talk more about women's dress. They didn't talk more about their lives or their marriages or whatever that sort of stuff was. I guarantee you I can find stories from 50 years ago that did that, um, but, but really less of that today. Um, Certainly in elections, there's lots of good evidence that, as is often put, when women run, women win, that they're just as likely to win elections. Now, there's increasing research that suggests the, the issue, though, is that women only run when they're hyper-qualified. So a pool of hyper-qualified women are just as likely to, to uh, win as a pool of some qualified men and some less so. Um, it turns out measuring those things are kind of hard and what is a qualification in 2020, right? Um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's lots of reasons to think that um, things are better for women candidates. We saw in 2018, right, this, and it was historic. We have never, I, if Seth would let me write graphs, I would have shown you. You know, this humongous leap in the number of women off. And there's good evidence, but I just read a paper that's a meta-analysis of all these experiments that, are, that have been done. Democratic voters in particular, with no other information, would rather a woman ran than a man. There's all sorts of reasons about that. They seem to assume that women are more competent and ethical and collaborative, et cetera, which is really just what we're telling everybody until we get all the power. Um, <laughs> Do you have a date for that? <laughs> so I have, a real, I have a substantive question about that. Yes. Does, do these kinds of stereotyp positive stereotypical assumptions raise the expectations for women candidates once they're in office? Yes, they do. Exactly. So there's good work. So there's work on do women get punished more for scandals, especially if they're you know ethnic. Well, we expect those white guys to be throwing money around and sort of whatever, but the women are supposed to be there. I mean, literally. So in the 19th century, this was called municipal housekeeping. That women would get into politics because they would clean up the dirty, corrupt world of politics. That has been the expectation on women forever. The reason they weren't supposed to be in politics is it would keep them pure in the home where they would be a good impact on their on raising good sons and making their husbands better citizens. Literally, it's called Republican motherhood. Um, so that idea and that presumption is, and it's not just American, is, is really sort of longstanding. Um, and it's really problematic. So that's one. The other thing I want to say is that the presidency is a very unique office. And there's lots we can learn from other offices. But from my point of view as a, as a social scientist, we've had one major party nominee. Um, you might have heard her, her name was Hillary Clinton. She also was related to another president. She'd also been in the public eye for 20 years, one of the most polarizing figures in the late 20th century, et cetera, et cetera. What am I supposed to learn from Hillary Clinton? Right? And plus, there's what I could have learned very easily with a few different votes going a few different ways is, my god, she did it, and we have the first woman president. Um, that isn't apparently what we learned. Um, so I, it is hard to imagine when you look at your kid's uh, little um, placemat with all the American presidents on them, and they're all white men and then Obama that when people look up from that in the TV screen and they see Elizabeth Warren and they see Amy Klobuchar, et cetera, that they, that they bring the same sort of presumptions with them. When I talk about primaries, I always say one of the challenges is that candidates have to make people think, like, that could be the president. And my joke to my students is always, it's really easy for the incumbent because they play hail to the chief when you walk out and you stand in front of a presidential seal, right? There's that advantage. But there's also an advantage if you're a six-foot-tall white guy with white hair uh, and a certain bearing. 
right? Um, now, this question, which is also eternal in American politics, was it harder for people to imagine a black man or a white woman, or even better, right, a woman of color, a, a Kamala, or someone like that? I have opinions, but this is a panel and other people get to talk, um, is I think complicated. So the answer is I think no, they're not on equal levels. Um, I don't think it's a mistake that both the women that are kind of still at the top are senators with long experiences, et cetera. Um, but it's also a multifactual world. I guess I'll say one more other thing. One of the things I learned from reading Seth's book, which is gonna be terrific, um, and it didn't surprise me at all because we know it is that Usually women and people of color, their evaluation of how biased the world is towards women and people of color is much higher than that for um, people in the dominant group. Partly because, of course, they see it in a way that those of us in the dominant group don't understand uh, and, and because we don't experience it. Um, it would not surprise me at all to learn, if we could find a good way to measure this, that women and people of color are, are more concerned with electability and more cynical about whether an American can really elect another black president or a woman president. Um, they also, of course, have, one could argue, in the Democratic Party, the most to lose from not putting up an electable candidate. Yeah, yeah. So I want to ask a question following on the discussion here. So Christina sort of raised two uh, explanations here, two issues. One is, is Yes, it is harder, and here are all the re ways in which it's more difficult and the perception and so forth, and there's, there's that. But then the other half of it that you, you started off with was, was about um, the willingness of, the, you know, the, the supply side, right? The mm -hmm. willingness mm -hmm. of um, uh, white men to step up even when maybe they don't uh, have the, the credentials. Um, and so I'm curious what, we, what you or anybody thinks about with the field um, because the, we had this field that was very, very diverse, but it was also a field that, as Seth's initial anecdote <laughs> pointed out, was full of white, inter interchangeable white men, right? <laughs> and a lot of them winnowed away, right? Some of them haven't yet. Um, and what would have, the dynamics have been like if it didn't look like there's a million people out there and some of them are, uh, are women and people of color and instead had been, there are 10 people and Six of them are women or people of color. I mean, it is, I think, notable that, um, you know, uh, uh, Harris and Jill Brand and a number of people who have really serious qualifications found that they couldn't stick it out. And someone who is, you know, the mayor of a very important town. I knew that, it was going to come to this. Um, yeah. Is still around. I mean, he, you know, I, 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 he's fine, but you don't usually expect somebody. And it's not just the... Um, the, you know, I mean, there's some of it is in this perception that the issue, like he's, you know, he, he's the only main candidate that doesn't have an advanced degree, and yet I think most people think of him as like the smartest one, right? It's a little weird, but we, like he has this because he looks like he's the smartest one and he can speak language that you don't know. Um, but, um, but, but I mean, so there's, there's, there's an image advantage, but there's also like a woman in his position wouldn't be there. Not because she wouldn't be allowed to be there, but because she wouldn't, she'd she say. She would never occur to her to run. She would, I, you know, if I want to be president someday, I, I need to do some other things first. Um, and so, so the question is whether the field, like, so obviously that's true, whether the fact that the field was so crowded with these interchangeable white men affects the ability of, like, maybe that's why everybody win, everybody win it away. I, I would want to point out, first of all, let me tell you about how nice the parks are in South Bend, Indiana, since Pete <laughs> has been our man. 
So, no, I, I, so I was thinking about Pat Schroeder because I was coming to Colorado, and this, this sort of interchangeable white guy is, 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 of course, not new to this election. So when she thought about running, it was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, right? These, these sorts of questions. But again, questions about the park, I will take later. Um, so uh, after, uh, I remember reading online, just um, like after Kamala Harris dropped out, after Julian Castro dropped out, um, there were a lot of sort of instant reactions were, these rules suck. Um, the problem is the debate rules that are, you know, they're not allowing people to qualify. Uh, the, you know, the problem is, you know, certain other, other candidate rules. There's too many people. There's not enough people. Were there, um, were there nomination rules that could have been constructed in a way to promote greater inclusivity or to allow um, a more diverse field to survive longer? Um, you know, to, to what extent was that the, you know, the cause here? So I probably have as many opinions about debate rules as Christina does about South Bend parks. Um, <laughs> be awesome. but, um, and, and Seth and I have written some stuff on, on debate rules. Um, I think these, I mean, the debate rules that we have evolved out of a process to try and make, make things more transparent so that the debates, who gets invited to a primary debate isn't just who it occurred to that media outlet or Nancy Reagan in some cases and for the Republicans, um, who it occurred to them to mail an invitation to. Um, so I think this is in a lot of ways the most, the most inclusive set of debate rules we've ever seen. What the rules that would really make a difference are the rules no one will talk about, which are that Iowa and New Hampshire go first, and there's a lot of white people there, and they, they're not traditionally great places for candidates of color. That's not always true, but that's certainly, I mean, I will say once again, referring to my, uh, my, my group of colleagues on Twitter who have opinions, I wrote a piece about Harris dropping out, and most of the pushback that I got from people had to do with the fact that what had really hurt Harris was Iowa and New Hampshire. I don't know that I buy that because I don't think Harris was necessarily doing well in other places, but I think that's it's a perception. I think it's true, and it's the one it's the one primary rule thing that people really won't tackle in the way that they'll complain about debate rules. They'll complain about all sorts of other aspects of the of the primary process, but not that. So we're just bashing on the Midwest. Is that what's happening? Is that what I was invited out here for? Okay. I live in the Midwest too. But yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, I, when you say like, are there rules that could have been different? I mean, like you know, like if it was it was up to me, right? So you tear the whole thing down and you let parties nominate their their leaders the way that parties nominate their leaders in most democracies in the world, which is at a convention that the party gathers so they choose who their leader is going to be. Um, we don't do that. We think that we are choosing the nom the candidate, the human person who's going to run as the for the office of the president. Like that's the structure, right? That's not how like even in other places that have primaries, they get that they're choosing a leader for the party. Right? We just that's the problem. Um, so in some ways, like changing it to like what what can we do to make the candidates that are running for this office in a debate be more or less inclusive is like fixing the wrong thing. But we're stuck because we have, that's the game we're playing. We're not going to, we can't go back to a, a convention or so forth. I mean, what I would like to see is we can't go back to a convention or the smoke filled room. I think a smoke filled room would be better than the status quo, but smoke filled room also had its problems, right? There was, it was not transparent and people uh, felt like there were decisions being made that were leaving them out. So it, was, it wasn't ideal. They definitely would have chosen Kamal. 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, no, actually, like this is actually the premise, the large premise of the of the party decides is that for most of the cases, we actually get the same candidate that we thought you would get in a smoke-filled room. Um, and somehow the, the party manages to, to help someone out, and if it is Biden, then that's probably, would have been, it would have been that. But like, there's a way to get to something that is more like that, that is more transparent. I mean, um, what if instead of saying we want to have internal democracy in the, the primary process, by internal democracy, we said, oh, let's do internal democracy the way that we do democracy in the United States, which is representative democracy, right? And so we would choose people to go to a convention, and then at the convention, they would make decisions, like what is the direction of our party, and what should be on the platform, and then which candidate uh, should be the leader to represent that direction. Um, and then they might choose someone like a Kamala, right, at that, in that dynamic. Very, very public, very transparent, and you vote to send people to that convention, just like you actually technically do now. It's just that right now when you vote to send people to the convention, you're voting to send someone to the convention who you are, you are binding to vote in a particular way at the beginning. It'd be different if you were saying, I hear are the people who are local who I trust who I know who they like, and they're, this is a Sanders guy, and so I like him because he likes Sanders, but I'll send him there to back Sanders until it turns out Sanders isn't gonna be the nominee, and then I will trust him to, to negotiate and go in the right direction, right? Now, there's all kinds of difficulties with, with that model that I'm talking about. The biggest one is that the way that we hold members of Congress accountable in our representative democracy is that they don't get reelected, but if you're sending people to a convention once, that's going to be a, a difficulty. Although this is what the whole idea of superdelegates is supposed to be, is that they are elected officials who's part of the party for a long time. So again, if we could think of that role in that way. But what I do, what I want to push on this is that you, there are actually reforms that we could do that could let the system slop in this direction. Right. So in the same way that we had this rule system that was all at a convention and then we started voting and we had more primaries and then we wanted more say and then all of a sudden it was in the primaries and it was like kind of surprise how that worked. What if we did try to make it and try to encourage uh, contested conventions and we got people to get the idea around the, the idea that you know, contested conventions are so bad. And therefore, the kind of people who you choose to be delegates matters. And then as a candidate, as I'm running, I'm not going to just tell you, you should vote for me because I'm great, but also because I'm picking good delegates, who, by the way, will be part of the party in the future. And it will shape the party in, a, in, in the direction that I want our revolution to shape the party, which, by the way, is kind of what Sanders did to a certain degree, but not publicly and transparently. Um, and so on. And so in other words, if you could turn the convention into a place where democracy happens, but at the convention, because the thing about the, what happens at the convention and the, the party leaders, it's not that they're smarter. It's that this is a really difficult decision, a multidimensional decision that requires lots of trade-offs. And you can't negotiate if all you're doing is I'm voting for Warren because I like Warren and that's it and I'm not going to bend from that. But if you can get to the convention and say, you know what, uh, I really like Bernie and you really like Biden and neither of us have, has enough, who can we find who we can coordinate on? That would be, so I would, like, that's what I would like to see as a inclusive, that's a completely different model though. So again, I reject the premise of your So question. I want to pick up on two things that, that Hans alluded to there. And one, one actually gets back to your question. So I want to, I want to reinvigorate the premise of the question. Um, it's very about, kind. Specifically okay. about what the pressure of this this twenty what was it twenty four at the beginning, um, and how how having all these random interchangeable people that you referred to in the beginning, um, how that might have borne on candidates like Kamala Harris, like Cory Booker, um, because I think that connection's not obvious, but it's there. 
And there's two things going on there. One is that, to, to pick up on Hans's point about having a convention that actually did stuff, we really don't have any conception of national party politics that's not about the president. And so that means that the presidential nomination is doing all this work. Like This is a piece I keep thinking about writing, and I haven't, so someone else should. I've already worked. Um, OK, yes, I think we're writing a lot of the same pieces. <laughs> that's OK. There's a lot of internet to go around. Um, the, but is that like here are all the functions parties might have been doing in the early 20th century and the 19th century, and like here's how many of them are now being done in a presidential primary. So like, did Seth Moulton really think he was going to be president? Did Eric Swalwell really think he was being pre going to be president? No, but a lot more people know their names, right? It generates a lot of you know, funding and and fame and a national profile. And it's critical to have a national profile if you want to advance later. But like the, we could do that in some way that didn't involve running for president. right? We could have a national party that, that picked stars and leaders without them running for president. But the other thing is, it has to do with the media. So I've been doing some work for the book that I'm working on, on how the media covers political parties, which there's very little about. Um, and one of the things that I found is starting in about the 1960s, there's this real emphasis on party unity and on party division. And this maps onto a lot of the work on framing. That's very much, you know, journalists like to write about conflict. Um, and I think that that frame really came in, in in 2019. You get all these candidates, and it's like, this field is a mess. It's a zoo. The Democrats are so divided. And that puts pressure so on some of these minor candidates, many of whom have dropped out, but also puts a lot of pressure on mainstream candidates who care about their future in the party, they care about the party, and so they don't want to be seen as contributing to that, to that division and that mess. And so I think that that puts, it puts, having a lot of candidates on stage puts indirect pressure on some of the ones that are kind of maybe the higher second tier. Okay. Um, I think at this point we should probably turn things over to the audience, and I'd like to see, uh, do we have any questions for our panelists? Debate rules that you feel are antiquated. Can I, can I start by saying there are no antiquated debate rules because the first presidential debate in the general election was in 1960, which maybe that sounds antique to some people in the room. <laughs> um, so I take it all back now. Uh, and then, and then we didn't have them again until 1976. Having primary debates and the five million of them and the flashing screens and the, how terrifying that all is is a 21st century invention. Basically, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, and so part of what you're getting is we're making this up off the top of our heads, right? And if you take that longer view, you see how candidates, I always show my, my party students the first political ads that were, were run, right? And um, you know, some of them sound like you're selling cereal and some of them are black and white, I'm voting for Stevenson because, um, and they're creepy in their own ways. Um, <laughs> So I think part of it is, it is they come about at a time when media is right this diverse and niche and polarized and all those other sorts of things, and when there's Twitter and when there's social media and all those sorts of things, and so the party has even more pressure on itself to like find a place, right? Alternatively, it's going to be who's on the roll, who's riding their skateboard through a parking lot or whatever, and it's got a video that everybody watches, right? We're going to find a place that everybody has an equal chance to say their part, et cetera. But that's a very hard thing to do, right? It's, and, it, and it's not a new problem. It's ballot access. Once the government started printing ballots, 
does anybody who feels like being a candidate get to have their name on the ballot? No. You have to get this many signatures. Oh, wait, but that's hard, right? So I, I think it's a long-term process, right? And the job of political parties, one of them, is to basically provide a venue through which ambition runs and to make it so that when you and I go to vote on election day, we're not having to decide between these 24 people, 12 of which are white guys that I just cannot tell the difference between. Um, someday maybe 12 of them will be black women and I can't tell the difference between them either, but I'm not holding my breath right now. Um, so I, I think it, it, the reason the debate thing is so ugly is it gets to a bigger problem the party has, right? Its job is to sort of take a big mess and say, this is our person. And the debate is just where the constant fight is over it right now, is my sense. Did you? So, I, I, well, one thing I think on, on the on debate rules, when you say that, do you mean like rules about who gets into the debates, or so? I, I think part of the this is only like adjacent to your question, but it, it gets it, they're not debates, right? They're obviously not debates, right? I, I did I did you know uh, debate in, in high school, mm -hmm. competitive debate. I, it's not debate, right? Which is which is fine. It's not like it should be. I don't think it like a, a competitive debate. You have a question. Result. You're trying to get an answer to both either side. Uh, at, you know, at, at Georgetown we have a you know a debate society and we get together with you. They're not doing that. But there's not like any like, even they're not even doing a debate about like well which one of us should you vote for because um, like that's you know, they're not they're just you know there's eight people or whatever. It's it's just what the, so what is the point of the debate? What are we trying to get out of the debate? Well, the the what we want is a little bit of spontaneity, right? Because press conferences when they're by themselves, and then we kind of want some interaction. We want someone to, what we really want is someone to call people out when they say something that is, should be challenged, right? So somebody uh, on the, you know, says, I'm for this, you want someone to be able to say, no, you didn't. And we, you'd think maybe journalists would do that, but they don't. Mm -hmm. um, but candidates have an incentive to do it. And so we put them in the same room in front of cameras and we make them do this. Well, when you think of it that way, there's no reason why the, and this gets back to your, to your question, there's no reason why it needs to be two people or six people or why the model that the Democrats had at the beginning where it was just two random sets is bad, right? Why do I need to have the two leading candidates on the stage at the same time if I'm not actually going to make a decision about between those two leading candidates at the end of the debate? I mean, yes, it might be nice to have, you know, Sanders and Biden go at each other so I could see clash on that question. But really, I just want someone to call Sanders on what he's saying. I want someone to call Biden on what he's saying. And it doesn't even have to be the other one. So I think the problem is, in, in some ways, because we think that like the debate is going to be this place where you get into the debate, and then you, uh, you fight it out, and then you make it to the next stage, and there are fewer people at that stage. Like That's maybe the problem, instead of like more forums where you can have them talk to each other. And then we don't have to worry about how many people are on stage, or even if everybody's uh, uh, on the stage at the same time. Yeah. I was going to take it back to where you started. We talked about like how do we like figure out who's electable and like have a strategy for winning. Um, do you guys think that there's anything about who was president last matters? Who's going to win the next presidency? You know, and where like you know racism with Obama, things like that, or like maybe hopefully with Trump. You know. But do you guys see that as an important factor? I mean, there's definitely a pattern where um, you see this starting around with Bill Clinton, where you have, you have Bill Clinton, and then you have George W. Bush kind of runs as the anti-Clinton, right? Where Clinton had all these you know, marital problems and affairs, and we were dry, and he was very slippery in what he believed. And then Bush is like, I have moral clarity, and I am, you know, I, am, I stand for something, and I do not change my mind. 
Um, and then you get Obama who comes in and is like, I'm a cerebral professor and you know, I will talk about blah, blah. And so you get this sort of back and forth dynamic that's highly partisan, right? Um, I think that that dynamic, and then you get Trump comes in and Trump is, you know, fits very well into the anti-Obama. Right. I think this dynamic, so this dynamic is very partisan. I think it's very challenging for Democrats because if you have a candidate-centered world where candidates then have these characteristics that come to stand in for what the party believes, for Republican, Republican, this is data. I'm, I'm quoting um, University of Maryland political scientist Liliana Mason, some of her data, where the Republican Party is relatively unified in terms of race and, and religion. Most people are white, most people are Christian. Democratic Party's all over the place. Um, is very diverse. So it's much harder to get a candidate, and we sort of see this in the discussion, who really embodies that. I think that's more challenging. And so that dynamic is challenging for, um, for Democrats. And I don't know, and it seems to be a kind of two-term dynamic. So I don't know how well it works for a president running for re-election. That's, this is a theory with not a lot of observations, just a lot of me spinning my wheels alone <laughs> in my office. Uh, you guys brought up that strategy could be more important than the actual candidate, and we're kind of seeing this divide between the hyper-liberal socialism and this more like moderate Democrat, whatever. Um, and I was wondering if you guys could speak to the advantages or disadvantages of that or either of those. Uh, well, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I didn't quite follow the question. Well, isn't it so, like the New York Times article, folks are more, and they kind of treated them as these opposite of progressive and very moderate. Mm -hmm. um, and you guys mentioned strategy being more important. Do you think that the platform they're running on matters? So it, one of the things I hear you saying is, if Democrats go one way, are they more likely to be electable than if they go the other way, right? Um, and I think that's a great question. Um, one of the things that Julia has written about it a lot and brilliantly is this idea that um, we're in this really weird period where the parties can't seem to control anything, weak parties, yet partisanship in the mass public is exceptionally strong. Right? So there were some different things that happened on Election Day 2016, but in some ways what is so remarkable about Election Day 2016 is how normal most of the patterns were. Right? This election is unusual in a million different ways. And yet, the gender gap didn't, frankly, change that much, despite the fact we had a woman candidate and Donald Trump and you know the whole thing. Um, so there's part of me, there's part of me that wants to say, it doesn't matter. We're going to fight about this and who gets me on the debate stage. And Democrats are going to vote for the Democratic nominee and Republicans are going to vote for the Republican nominee. And it's all going to come down to turnout. But of course, if it all comes down to turnout, then there is that question about excitement, right? And that sounds like a weird thing to talk about. Who cares how excited people are? But again, remember, 80,000 votes in three states. All you need is some people saying, I really wanted to vote for the Democratic nominee, but it, I was late from work and I had to get the kids at daycare and we had a thing tonight and it doesn't really matter how I vote anyway and I don't really care. As opposed to, I, you know, 2008, voting for the first ever African-American president, I'm clear in my, just, now I'm on video. I'm clearing my schedule. I'm taking my kids. You're going to be there on the right. And so those are exactly the things I think the party's fighting about right now, right? Do we need somebody who will be acceptable more strategically, who will get us those 80,000 votes back in those upper Midwestern states, in which case maybe we want to go with Pete Buttigieg, right? I'm not actually trying to encourage that, but I have to defend my own former mayor. Um, 
Or maybe we say we want people so passionate about voting that they are getting people out and they're you know, excited on election day. Um, and so we want it to be Bernie or we want it to be somebody else. I think the other thing to add to, to that is that, you know, so it sounds like from you know, what, what Christina just said is that you, there's potential that this strategy could work if it, you know, because it will mobilize these people and I want this to go right. this way. This right. strategy could work, it could be this way, these things. And so, um, and like, is one of them maybe slightly better than the other? I don't know. I could, you know, we could spend a lot of time trying to slice it up and try to figure it out. But, you know, maybe either strategy is, is just as likely and also just as likely to fail. Then the problem is that you've got people who are invested in those strategies for other reasons, right? So, you know, I want, I think that, you know, Bernie would have won and we should do that because that's the right direction we should do, you know, we would get those folks. And also that's the direction I wish the party would go. And then, just a coincidence. you know, yeah. just a coincidence, it happens. Or no, you know, we really need to, um, it's very, very important to, to have the, the, you know, to not stop with, with one and to continue to have better descriptive representation in the party um, because that'll mobilize the people who are really excited and they'll want to do this. But also that's what I really wish the candidate would be, right? And so there's just this longstanding view that I think most people have that is not like, it's not that these people aren't, this isn't a, a criticism, this is just how our brains work, that we think that the thing that will work is also the thing that we want ourselves, which is why it's very difficult then to, to sort this out. It's one of the reasons why it's very, very effective for a candidate uh, to have a lot of appeal from people unlike themselves, right? Because then that says yeah. that they're like, they've convinced a lot of, and that's what we look for is this sort of broad appeal beyond their own slice of the, of the, um, of the party. And part of the issue I think has been that we haven't seen a candidate with that kind of broad, broad appeal um, in this cycle. And now it looks, starts to look, starting to look like Biden's able to yeah. pick up some pieces of this, but it's, it's, still, um, uh, it's still not as, as sort of solid as some of the previous candidates have been. And really quick, beyond the, uh, beyond this, again, beyond the characteristics of candidates that get people to turn out, the sort of party apparatus and the sort of mobilization efforts of the party and the, you know, the sort of affiliated groups play an extremely important role in getting people to turn out, okay? And the problem, and this, is, this gets at this divide because Bernie has sort of been burning bridges with the party, right? To say the least, right? And the question is, he gets the nomination. Will he have enough control of the party to, to and these like local parties, you know, organizations to get the mobilization for the base to turn out, you know, and, and that's the key. Yes. Um, something I genuinely don't understand, and it's like sticking in my head, I'm kind of puzzled out uh, as we're all talking, specifically my feeling, but is um, this thing you started with, with that so much, there's so much weight to what kind of public narrative sticks, either after an election, or what went wrong, or during an election, a person of color can't win this year, or can't, a woman can't win against Trump. These, so these kind of meta narratives that get stuck in the public, in public discourse. Remind me what tools a party has to uh, counter narratives when they've gotten stuck. I'm thinking about things like um, after Romney's loss in the whole, you know, what they call the postmortem that the GOP did, and there was this narrative about we have to be more diverse, we can't be blah, blah, blah. Well, obviously, 
and that worked out great. They were totally right on that. The right <laughs> just like moved past it all, you know, um, and gets full on hardcore party support. So, but I can't think of what they are because the way that just even seeing right now this, uh, you know, party unity or party division among the Democrats, what everything means is read through that lens. I'm seeing that that's in the papers. And that's, that's in every article about Democrats. And it's all over Twitter, too, just being casual in threads. But at, you know, at this juncture, what are they called? Party House. I mean, the part, they, it's transmitting through its candidates a counter-narrative sometimes. It's like, what can it do as an entity? Or is it that you know, party insiders are just as hooked in to those bought into those narratives or they're following the narratives always rather than leading the narratives. I think parties are at a disadvantage in a message oriented political environment. Mm -hmm. That's I mean I think that's part of it. That the two things don't match up it's one thing that can't respond. Well, and in some ways this used to be the function of of primaries and sort of still is, right? That um, John F. Kennedy goes out into all these primaries in the 1960s, not because that's where you win delegates, but because if he can win in Hubert Humphrey's backyard, if he can go to West Virginia and show that he doesn't just come off as the rich Boston-accented guy, it's also turned out to be transformative Catholic. for Catholic guy, transformative for Kennedy, uh, because he did, in fact, see a world he wasn't used to seeing, um, that, that that could be helpful. Um, we saw that with Obama in 2008, which is when he was able to be so successful in Iowa, people did say, oh, white people will vote for this black candidate, right? Maybe we should look twice at him when we were really concerned that there was no reason to bother uh, because he couldn't win. Um, it feels like we've been in this primary system forever because we in have the or just this cycle. This cycle. <laughs> this cycle. It will never end, never. not ever. But stuff is gonna start happening that starts to matter, right? And, and while it, is really messed up the way that we run our nominations and things. There's also certain advantages to running them in an order and not all in one day. And so different stories come out. Maybe, maybe there'll be this groundswell of enthusiasm for Warren that says, oh, I guess maybe, um, maybe people will vote for a woman even though they didn't, you know, wouldn't vote for her in 2016. But I agree with Julia. Uh, I thought you were gonna ask an even harder question, which is where do those narratives come from? Hans would be the right question, person to ask about that, but but I don't think we have a good answer to but that. I largely say it's the, it all hangs on a candidate's shoulders. There's no, no party that can do anything, you know, that which counters is, those narratives beyond the candidate. Which is funny because, as you know, the vast majority of political science research would say it's almost nothing to do with the candidate. Right. Right. Well, I mean, just to jump on, I mean, I think that you can see. In an, on an informal basis, a lot of party leaders in past elections trying to just put their spin on why this election came out as it did. Um, and usually there, there can be influential people, they can be consultants or governors or something like that, who just say, you know, clearly we need to move, you know, away from Dukakis-like candidates and more toward Clinton-like candidates, you know, some, and, and put sort of that spin on the next cycle. Um, I think the example you brought up of um, the RNC putting out its post-mortem after 2012 was a really unusual example of a modern party trying to say, this is the definitive reason we lost, and we clearly need to move in this other direction. Um, I mean, and, and totally didn't take it. Yeah, yeah, it was very compelling. And, but there was another wing of the party that said, no. Um, and they went off in a totally different direction and, and also won. 
that's, but that's yeah. part of Hans's point too, yeah. which is that there's almost no one out there who's trying to tell us what elections mean, who's doing it from a place without bias. Right. Like everybody is wanting to say the lesson is X because that takes the party, candidate, whatever it is, in the direction I want it to go. And that's, and that's why you have the people standing out there spinning, right? I want you to believe that so-and-so did well tonight, and they resonated with the right people, et cetera. I mean, arguably, do the media play this role? I mean, someone like Chris Saliza, you know, take him or leave him as terms of analysis, but like, does he necessarily have a particular dog to champion within a party? Um, or is he trying to come up with a narrative? It's just anybody who's a woman, no. OK. <laughs> I mean, so this is where this is why I'm trying to write this chapter about how media covers parties because we really don't actually have a lot of systematic mm -hmm. data. Um, but the the incentive and the motivation is different, but it's not that there isn't an incentive. I think that probably people in the media have have less incentive than people within the parties to push a specific faction within the party. But they do have they do have certain what I've found anyways, they do have certain narratives that they kind of fall back on that seem to be what people are looking for in a story about parties, right? And that's, and those narratives I think often do coincide with other ideological and political perspectives and interests. So that's how, that's how I would conceptualize that. So it will look the same even if it's coming from a different place. And the media also aren't doing this in, in isolation, right? I mean, like if you're gonna write a piece like what happened, what do you do? You go and talk to the people. And um, maybe they would be better, they could be better about like identifying when the people have a bias, but they, they're not always, right? So then it's like, oh yeah, these are the stories. That the, these, are what, these are the stories we're gonna tell. Um, and I think that in particular, the media is, is working very hard to convince people that they're not biased, which means that they go bend over backwards to embrace narratives that are not the ones that they would be inclined to buy. So that's a different bias. But there's a reason why we know everything about every person at a diner in, in West Virginia, because that's a story that, I mean, it's a story that, I mean, those are, there's a group of, it is. Because the people who read the New York Times are not in a diner in West Pennsylvania. Exactly. So that's the only, right. Right, right, exactly. And so that, like, that, I mean, it's, and it's not a bad story to write once. Um, <laughs> but, um, but it's, but I mean, so that, that is a particular narrative that is, that is really, you know, that makes sense for, uh, to, to journalists. I, mean, I, I was a journalist and I, I um, that went to journalism school, and I know like this is how journalists think about this: is they they want to they want a narrative, they want to add a story, but, but they also want one that is that fits with what their expertise is and the rest of it, and um, and so they're 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 not in a, in a vacuum, and they're in getting all these same narratives that are coming from mostly people who have an extra grind. So can I just say one more thing about that? Is is if we're mostly talking about, and even you guys got Hans's jokes because you're all educated people on a college campus, right? We're talking about, I'm sorry, we're, we're, we're talking about a narrative and what do people believe and what's being said and that's all useful and because opinion leadership is a real thing and the people who pay the most attention to politics have the most impact on it. Those things are true. I thought one of the most telling things to come out this week was um, on Jeopardy apparently last week they showed a picture of Adam Schiff who is the uh, house manager of the impeachment proceedings today and you're all nodding like of course I know who that is. Not one person on Jeopardy could name who that was. Okay, because normal people do not come out and listen to political scientists on a Thursday night. They are home with their families. They're watching television. Why are you shaming our audience? I am shaming you. I say this to my students all the time, you freaks and weirdos. Like this is not what normal people do. Um, and I think always remembering that is true too. And, and part of it, right, even the people who turn out in primaries aren't a normal distribution of representation of the American public. 
but we're going to learn something there too. And our polls are useful. And don't let anybody tell you that just because um, Hillary Clinton didn't win in 2016, you can never believe a poll again. Um, but I think it's, it's also important to remember that some people are just like, I don't know much about any of these guys. I can't pronounce that South Bend mayor's name. But Joe seemed like a good guy when he was up there with Obama those years. And so fine. And I've heard of his name. It's worth remembering. Normal people are not paying attention to this. Weirdos. <laughs> Elise, did you hear? Yeah. Um, <laughs> earlier, at the beginning of the was when you said that there were um, six or more problematic things with the primaries. And like, I know you've probably drawn for like how many problems there are, but um, <coughs> if there's something that's going on now that you think is in a problem past, it's maybe improving or something that's getting worse this primary. So, so one thing that I hate about the primaries, this is, this is a really good question. So one thing I really don't like about the primaries is the sequential nature uh, um, and the, 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 the extra um, you know, value that Iowa and New Hampshire play because of that. Right? So not only are Iowa and New Hampshire not representative, but no state is representative. And so like, any time you have two, people, two states that go first, like they're doing the winnowing. They're the ones who get the big. And so the choices that later happen are, are just not aren't an option. You know, Jeb Bush dropped out in 2016 when, like, what, five, less than 5% of the Republican electorate had a chance to vote for him. Right? And so that's, I, that's bad, right? That's just on its face bad. Um, and it's so, in fact, it's so on its face bad that it's astonishing that, like, there are, that more people don't, like, say we need to do something about it. One proposal is like, well, what if you rotate or whatever? Because no one wants to do a, a uh, one-day national primary because that's overwhelming. What we are getting, though, is increasingly a nationalized conversation, right? So that the winnowing that has happened has not happened simply because um, the candidates that didn't do well uh, and that have dropped out couldn't get traction in Iowa and New Hampshire. Some, there's, we still pay too much attention to those states, but the, the process is shifting to being more, na more national in an informal way. But um, that's probably good, right? That the more, you know, being able to do well in national polls and being able to fundraise nationally and therefore not being able to do those, therefore you drop out, that's probably better than the incredible focus on the, these, two, these two places. I, I, my, I'm going, I tend to take students who are going to go to the first four sites and it's really great, but what does it say about American democracy that you have to travel to another state to observe it? It's, it's not a good thing. And I, the, the shift to more national is, is better. Man, I wish I had thought of saying that. That's a really good <laughs> point. <laughs> Dang it. So I, I'll say one positive thing, which is that I do like that this primary seems to be generating a lot of interest and attention, even though most people are still not paying attention. But more people than, you know, when I was in, in college about 20 some years ago, it was nobody cared. Um, you know, the, the Al Gore, Bill Bradley primary in 2000 did not excite people on the Democratic side. There was, I mean, a little more friction between John McCain and George W. Bush, but still it was not, you know, college students weren't plugged in the way I see my students yeah, at Marquette are plugged in. But I will say this, I think that this speaks to something Hans was saying earlier about how people are trying to make decisions about both who's electable and who they prefer. And that there's like cognitively, we tend to just align those. Um, that's because people are being asked to do a really difficult task. And I asked my students last semester at Marquette in my party politics class to, to say who they preferred in either primary and then also to guess the percentage of the class. So this is a class of about 35 political science majors. At, we're not a huge university, right? 12,000 new kids. They know each other. They've taken classes together. There's only 35 of them. 
and I asked them to figure out how, you know, what does the prefer what are the preferences of this class look like? And they weren't terrible, but they weren't great. Right? They were they vastly overestimated the support of Biden. They underestimated support for Warren and Sanders. They underestimated support for Trump. They overestimated support for all the minor candidates. You know, so when you take a group of people who are very similar to each other, they're all similar age, they're college students, they know each other, they're political science majors, and they still can't guess each other's preferences. That's really hard if you think about millions of people in the Democratic electorate or the Republican electorate in a different year trying to guess what each other is thinking on the fly. I think that's really, like, that's just not something we're equipped to do. Um, and that's really the challenge of primaries, and I don't think we're going to solve that in the system we currently have. Um, I, my question, I guess, is uh, could you comment on the mobilization that might occur if Elizabeth Warren were nominated to have Republicans who might not be motivated to vote come out and vote? Is that a meaningful dynamic? Yeah, or vote against Warren. Oh, against Warren. Yeah. You, you, I feel like you talk about mobilization yeah, and mobilization. Yeah, yeah, my yeah. wife this morning said that. Elizabeth Warren will ensure that Trump gets elected, and, and she believes that because she feels like she grew up in a rural part of New Mexico, and she was like a lot of people who might be otherwise indifferent to uh, elections would see her candidacy as a real threat to their life was mobilized to come out and vote against her. So that would be a kind of a mobilization factor yeah, yeah, with her, by virtue of the candidate. So that's a real thing, right? And when we're talking about demobilization, right? You can't. You want your people to show up. You're probably not going to sway a lot of de Republicans. To be like, I'm going to vote Democratic this year, and that's not happening. You're not going to go the other way. But you might make them so unenthusiastic that they either stay home, like I don't love Trump, I don't hate the, but if they really don't like the Democrat, right? Then they're like, I'm going to go ahead and vote for Trump to avoid. It's hard for me to imagine a Democratic candidate more hated by Republicans than Hillary Clinton. So I sort of feel like we've already seen that experiment. Um, and it didn't, work, you know, it didn't work out well for the Democrats. Um, and, and there are lots of ways, oddly enough, that while they're very different, um, there are some of the same weaknesses that Hillary Clinton had that I think Elizabeth Warren will have. In particular, so far, Warren has not found a lot of success in reaching out to the African-American community. Um, and that was certainly a challenge for Clinton based on a Clinton record as well. Um, yeah, so, but almost every candidate is going to enthuse some on either sides and scare some on other sides. I think that last point is the thing that really is, is important is that like, one of the things that was unusual about Hillary Clinton is because we'd known her and she'd been in the public eye for so long that she was already really, really well known and really polarizing when she was nominated and so that we knew where that was going to go. But whoever the Democrats nominate will be campaigned against. And I don't mean to say like, oh, the Republicans will smear whoever, they'll just be campaigned against, right? They will say things about them that are, they're going to find things that are make them why they don't like them. They're going to try to say, this is why you need to support our candidate, not only because you like our candidate, but because you don't like the other candidate. And you know, with Biden, you can be sure that you're going to be hearing about Hunter Biden and Burisma throughout the whole campaign. If it's Sanders, I can tell you, there's a, he's, he campaigned for a Marxist and he was a socialist, and that we're, you're going to hear about socialist even if it's Biden. 
honestly. Uh, but you'll really hear about it if it's, if it's Sanders. Like every candidate's gonna have some baggage. Now, are they all gonna be equal? I don't know. And will it be uh, harder for, um, for a woman or for a person of color? I mean, we, we, have, we, we think we have some good evidence that uh, Barack Obama should have done better in 2008 than he did, but for his race. Right? I mean, that's my understanding of the way the literature yeah, is, right? Given the, given the state of the economy okay. and yeah. the Republican she, right. she should have done even better than, and then, you know, and you, can, you would also notice this by where he did poorly. You can say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's probably the explanation. Um, and so, like, everyone's going to have some, some uh, potential baggage. And it's just that with, with women or persons of color or a, a devout socialist, it's easy to identify what the thing is. But that doesn't mean that the campaign will not reveal other things. Yeah, let's take one last question here. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on the people's candidate, Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> and uh, but in, in all seriousness, do you guys see a possibility for someone to essentially buy their way into the race and then actually succeed at doing something other than a function right? Ooh, can I jump in on this? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> we all have a lot yes. of opinions. Yes. <laughs> like, if you had asked me about Mike Bloomberg a month ago, like, I, even setting aside whether I like him or dislike him, like, like the whole premise of his campaign offended me deeply, like as a party scholar. Like, no, you shouldn't be able to allow, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, he was, because not just he's using his money and he's jumping in, but like he's not playing by the rules that everyone else is playing by. He's basically ignoring the early states. He's saying, I don't care about your debates. Um, I'm reasonably well known and I have a ton of money, so I'm just gonna buy ads and run later. And what has been most interesting about that to me is that it hasn't gone nowhere. Um, I believe there was some look at endorsements, uh, like 538's endorsement counts, uh, just in, during the month of January. Biden has the most endorsements during that month. Second place was Bloomberg, um, including um, our former Speaker of the State House of Colorado, uh, Chrisanta Durant. She just endorsed Bloomberg last week. Um, so he's getting like not nobodies um, to endorse him. And so I, I still doubt this strategy will pay off, but it's not going nowhere. And he's actually managing to generate a little bit of goodwill within the party um, by doing some things that are not hostile to the rest of the party. So that's actually, it's kind of surprised me. Um, but it, that's a very, it's an unconventional and very outsidery strategy um, to doing this. And if it pays off, and everything we do is out the window, I think, right? Yeah. When, I, when I teach parties, I, now I do like, this is how I always explain how things work. And now let me explain what works and what didn't work in 2016. And I love, the, the Trump example is great in the sense that it really helps us understand what matters, right? So in most previous elections, the person who had raised the most money before Iowa was probably going to win. And that's a whole bunch of reasons. They had the ability to keep their campaign going. That meant that big people in the party supported them. It meant a whole lot of different things. But mostly it meant that they had the ability to get their name out there, right? The truth is, even if you're a senator, lots of people don't know your name and don't know anything about you if they're not from your state. So I'll always show my class, you know, Trump like raised less money than like five or six other Republicans. He didn't, right? And then you get to free media, right? What we earn media. How much did he get covered, right? And then they're all over here and the Trump line is to here, right? And, and I think that tells us something about having a known name is not a little thing. Because again, not to be insulting to all of you fine people, but a lot of people aren't paying that close of attention to politics. And so Bloomberg, and I, what do I associate that with? Successful business person, international, Bloomberg News. But you know, Big like, gulps. 
big, apparently big gulps. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm not tuned in enough to politics to really understand what's happening. Um, and I think that's, as a democracy, something that we have to sort of confront and think about. That's always been true. We've been electing war heroes and these sorts of things since George Washington, you know? Um, that's not new, um, but, but in a more nationalized system, these dynamics are getting surprising. That's a good way to put it, yeah. I, I would have said, so like Seth, if you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said, you know, this is just not the way to do it, and it is surprising that it's getting some some traction, um, uh, but I mean, I'm and I'm surprising. I'm still surprised that it's getting some traction because you know, he's a Republican. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and well, so like, like, why is he? If he want to run for president, you know, there's a there's a very unpopular presidential incumbent that you could you're allowed to run again anyway. Um, I was like, why is he not doing that? Um, so I am a little bit surprised, but I will. So I, you know, I, I think this is an interesting strategy. It's he's doing surprisingly well in some polls. But those are not what matters at the end, right? You got to win some delegates, and if you don't actually compete in the primary, right? So he's, he said, "I'm not going to. I'm just not going to get any from Iowa, from Iowa, New Hampshire. New Hampshire, you can write in, I think, but you know, Iowa's out. Um, right after that, but yeah. And um, eventually, he's going to maybe pick up some delegates, but he's got to actually win some delegates at some point, right? A lot, and, you know. And so, and so, like being at twenty percent because from doing nothing is kind of oh, like except for spending money but not participating is like amazing if that if he gets to that. But it's still not winning the delegates, and no one's campaigned against him yet either, mm. right? Like because he has because he's not the threat. So just like you know the same with anybody you know, who's going to be the general election. I mean. There are a lot of things that you could say about Bloomberg that I think people don't know because he's running ads that say Trump is bad, which most Democratic voters agree with, <laughs> right? But, you know, like, okay, so vote for whoever the Democrats nominate, right? But why should I, why should I choose you? So, I, I mean, I still think that he's got to make a big jump to actually start winning delegates. Um, but I agree that he's, like, uh, closer to that than, than I would have guessed. Can I, can I say the, the word that we're not supposed to say about parties? I think Bloomberg is kind of playing um, a strategy for if there's a contested convention. Hmm. And that's, you know, that's what, in that case, the delegates are in play. And in that case, you kind of come in as the person people haven't campaigned against, so relatively few people hate you. Um, and the, uh, the main guys have all, have all knocked each other out. This, is, this used to be the way yep. that, yep. that um, people got nominated. And I think Bloomberg is like, this is an outside strategy, right? This is, I'm not saying this is likely to happen. But it's true. I live in Milwaukee where the DNC will be. And he has a very strong presence there. You cannot avoid driving past his headquarters. It's in a space that used to be a smooth jazz bar, which amuses me. <laughs> but, um, but you cannot avoid it. And it's, you know, he's, he's running a lot of ads. He's the only candidate I've seen any ads for. We don't have an earlier influential primary. Um, and I think that that might be part of, you know, he might be kind of thinking, well, if, if people can't decide among Biden and Sanders and Warren and, and Buttigieg and Klobuchar, then, you know, maybe he'll still be standing at that point. And why, why not? I, I like this point. I, I mean, as an advocate of contested conventions, in principle, I'm really not happy that he might be the one to, to like, <laughs> make that. The dark horse. You know, yeah, he's not a good you know, sort of standard bearer for that. But I mean, one of the other things that I always thought was like a problem with him and for his strategy is that you can't just buy a campaign, right? You can't, you can't write a check and then just have an organization in the state. And so like, that's, that isn't going to work. But he's actually, that's not what he's doing. I mean, he is running ads and writing checks for that. But he does have... 
Um, he has, you know, a political yes, yeah. connection, and and he, when he's got like because because he's done these things with uh, you know, sort of cultivating mayors and around the country. So he's actually been building an organization not for this purpose, but he's been building you know a, a network that uh, maybe it was for this purpose, but that that um, uh, that I certainly would dis would have discounted before, but that is is there um, that could then be trans translated into the kind of strategy that Julie was just talking about. So I guess we're good on Bloomberg. Okay. Um, so please join me in thanking our panelists for a really nice discussion. And unless things have gone very wrong, there should be food right outside those doors. Um, so thank you all for coming tonight. It's much appreciated.